guys, welcome back to another episode of Emotionally Unfucked. Um, we're so excited. Today, I uh, have myself and Stassi and a really special guest, uh, Tracy LMHC, aka the Bad Indian Therapist. Tracy, welcome. Thank you guys so much for having me. TC Reunion. Woo! Oh my gosh. We are so excited to have you. Like, I... I, you'll everyone's gonna hear me obsess over you over the next hour but like i am so excited to have you um I, the work crazy. you've done so yeah. fucking cool thank you <laughs> it's so, so, so cool to see how everyone from grad school from teachers college turned out um i'm so happy you guys considered me so thank you <laughs> so for our listeners tracy is a colleague of ours, um, someone we went to school with in our training to become therapists at Teachers College Columbia. Um, so it's really cool to see you now thriving in the private practice game and so that everyone can get a chance to get to know a little bit more about you. I'm going to read your bio and a little bit from your website, if that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Tracy is a New York City-based Columbia-trained psychotherapist who helps South Asian American clients work through feelings of guilt, shame, and cultural trauma. She owns her own private practice and works with clients in both New York and Florida. She goes by the Bad Indian Therapist on Instagram and TikTok, and you can also find her website at thebadindiantherapist.com. That's so badass. Um, <laughs> and on her website, which you should all stumble on there, um, is a is a much more <clears throat> detailed description of who you are and sort of the mission of your work that really drew us to want to talk to you today. So and I was read. so obsessed that I made us copy and paste the content of your website and everyone had to listen to it. Sorry, listeners, but you have to listen to it. It's the coolest thing ever. I'm obsessed with it. Emily, go for it. <laughs> word for word. Okay. So this is Tracy. If you come from a close-knit culture, unique traits and choices are looked down upon if they differ from the group norms. You might secretly hide parts of your life out of fear of being judged or ostracized. You may even resent and internalize negative beliefs about your culture. I've been and done all of those things. For so long, I was told that I was a bad Indian girl because I made choices that felt good to me but went against the unwritten rules of the culture. I did the opposite of what a good Indian girl does. I felt alone in my experience, and I struggled with anxiety and depression because of it. I gave myself the validation that I'm exactly where I need to be. Little did I know that other people who come from community-oriented spaces were also struggling. I'm a bad Indian therapist because I am my authentic self, and it doesn't matter whether you're Indian or not. I'm here to help you become your most authentic self, too. Tracy, this is so rad and badass. And it speaks to all the women that we're talking to on our podcast. Every listener we have, like you succinctly summarized exactly what we're trying to do is reject cultural norms, specifically of being good girls and what we're supposed to do. Um, that's what, how most women in this country, um, and I would say globe, I'd argue globally are raised. Um, and you're adding the cultural lens and a religious lens, which we're going to get into your background a little little more um because you've identified that you're um raised catholic as well and so you have quite a few of things uh working against you to stay in your little in a box 
Well, I, well, first of all, uh, Emily, thank you for reading that out loud. I was, is it bad that I was silently just like, oh my God, do, do I remember everything I wrote? Am, am I going to like accidentally mess up somewhere? Um, but luckily it sounds like it was exactly right. So thank you. I, I was worried that I messed up in my bio somewhere and wasn't entirely accurate about my niche. But uh, yeah, you know, to Stasi, to your point, I grew up both Indian and Catholic. And it's a very, very, very small minority of people, which means that like we are very insulated and everyone knows each other. Uh, and it's just a double whammy of guilt, right? You've got the Catholic guilt and then you've got like the South Asian guilt and high anxiety. So uh, that was basically my whole life was being taught that like, there's only one way to be, and this is who I was born as, so I have to choose to be this. Mm -hmm. And to this day, I still get into arguments with my parents about it, so it never ends. Mm -hmm. but that's not stopping me, so. And I, what we want, our first question that we want to know is, like, how did you wake up to the conditioning? How did you start noticing um, how you were participating, how you were being opposed upon, and, like, what was that process like for you? You know, it's when you sent me that question, I actually was not sure how to answer it because there's just like so many different moments that come to mind growing up. Um, and I think that for a lot of South Asian immigrants who come to the United States, they try their best to preserve the culture and the values. Mm -hmm. oh, but then they're sending their kids to school where we're learning important material that may contradict exactly what we're being told at home. Not just when it comes to like, you know, the common core, the things that we need to pass the grade, but also just life skills in general, like health ed class. Like mm -hmm. there were things that we learned in school that went against everything that we were taught at home. And I think that any child of immigrants can relate to this, you know, South Asian or not. I think that in South Asian households, the emphasis is on education to get a good job. And my dad always told me that education is number one. So of course I took everything that I learned in school very seriously. And sometimes we learned things that may have not agreed with our parents' values. I, uh, and I think that any time I mentioned like material that I learned when I heard something at home that wasn't 100% accurate or true, especially as a woman, a young girl, I was told, oh, you should be a lawyer. You should be a lawyer because a South Asian girl who's opinionated is unheard of. Mm -hmm. um, I think the other thing that I was told growing up that I did not realize was problematic until a couple of years ago was that daughters are supposed to keep the peace of the house. My mom told me that. Like, daughters, your job is supposed to keep the peace of the house, not start conflict. You're supposed to keep the peace, which effectively silenced us, right? It mm -hmm. made us feel bad for speaking out. But, 
you know, there were moments when my uncle would be like, oh, it's okay for a girl to marry outside of her race, but it's not okay for a guy because he carries the last name. Uh, and other ideas of like, this is how women should be and this is how men should be. Uh, that was really like, does it have to be this way just because I'm Indian? Like, what is it about being born into this that means I have to be like this? Like, what's the rule book? Who wrote mm -hmm. the rules and where is it? Mm -hmm. uh, and to that, my I, I, I run a group. It's called To Be Me, Exploring Daisy Bicultural Identity. And somebody in the group actually forwarded me an article from Brown Girl Magazine. And it was actually about how questioning these values and these unrealistic norms brings us more in touch with our culture because we're undoing white supremacy and we're undoing racism and imperialism that has affected us today. A lot of these norms are rooted in that. Mm -hmm. And I found that really heartwarming and it sounds like it was really heartwarming for my clients to hear this too, that actually us questioning these unwritten rules is us staying true to our culture and our culture's mm -hmm. history and the things that we don't hear about that were washed away through history. I would say that it's my long ended winded answer, but you know, I probably realized that this is fucked up from a very early age. And as a result, refused to attend a lot of gatherings or events where I knew that problematic shit was going to occur and nobody could figure out why. I would say this probably happened as early as age eight. I, I don't, I, I, I hope that answers your question, but like yes. it, it's, I realized that all of these things are pretty much trauma responses for a long time. Very interesting. I, there's so much like to unpack in all that you just said. It's so fascinating that, right. Like this education that was put on a pedestal by some of these norms and expectations were, was the same thing that like started the unraveling and the waking up of like the social conditioning. And it sounds like that has grown and grown. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about, about what your specific cultural and religious upbringing looked like and like, what were those expectations for use the term De Desi women, right? Which is like a person, I, a person of, for people who don't know, a person of Indian, Pakistani and Bangladeshi birth or descent, right? Who lives abroad. Yeah. Is that accurate? That's accurate. I think I often, I, I use interchangeably Brown, South Asian, they see just, to kind of make sure I'm not excluding anyone or leaving anyone out of the diaspora. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was raised, I was raised Indian. In particular, I come from a very small Indian subculture, the people who are Malayali, uh, from the southern state of Kerala. We could just say South Indian. And I was raised Catholic. My parents are very religious. There is a small minority of Indian Catholics that are pockets throughout the United States. Um, there's a pocket within suburban Chicagoland. There's a pocket in Miami, Florida. There's even a pocket out here in Long Island, Georgia, California. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people are surprised to hear that we exist. 
And, you know, I think that so much of our South Indian community is very much rooted in religion. And it is cultural for my family, but I think a lot of our specific cultural traditions really do revolve around Catholicism. There's a huge emphasis on Catholicism in the culture. And, you know, that's why I also, I do have a lot of clients who grew up in evangelical and Mormon communities Mm -hmm. relate to that for that reason that there there's a lot of similarities between the community that I was raised in and then the Bible Belt, essentially. I think that, and, you know, maybe you both can relate to this too, but there are expectations of what a good woman is and what a bad woman or a bad person is. Mm-hmm. That there, it created this idea that I think as therapists, we, we also struggle with is that a good woman of the community will self-sacrifice no matter what, because that is her role. And that she is to put others' needs before hers because she's a caring person. And it really, really cemented this idea that any woman or girl who chooses to identify her needs and trust her gut is selfish, is Satan, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, and is making the family or the community look bad. And I... Now, looking back on that, there are so many mental health implications that come with that. You know, essentially teaching young girls from an early age to ignore their gut. And then we wonder why sexual abuse just runs rampant in these communities, right? Like, we're teaching young girls and women to ignore red flags. Otherwise, they're selfish, I mean, it's not just sexual abuse either. It goes into a whole other lot of like shame and guilt and disgust that comes with a woman who is valuing her own needs. And oftentimes in these very insular communities, we are conditioning or training young girls to eventually become future wives. And that mm-hmm. is the idea of an ideal wife of the of the culture, of the religion, of the community. So I think growing up both Catholic and Indian, especially in a community where the religion was the culture, Mm -hmm. um, the religion is the culture, it was eventually becoming non-religion, eventually becoming non-religious meant being less in touch with my culture, at least on their terms. Right. So we talk a lot about... um, when you step when you step aside from what the expectations are when you um reject no- cultural norms there's potentially backlash and usually dangerous backlash not so much physical anymore hopefully right and that still does exist but um emotionally pretty mm-hmm. dangerous backlash and your instagram account is really full of 
talking about those dangers, estrangement, shame. Um, I, I mean, we could name a lot of things that happen in, in my own personal life outside of religion when I overstep or claim space in a job, right? Um, those show up really powerfully, right? To tell me who I am and what I'm supposed to be allowed to do. And so in in addition to that, I have never grown up religious. And so, um, and I just get to identify as a uh, blended American person, right? There, it's less specific, right? I know it's around, it exists. I've been socialized with it, with movies, TV, uh, feedback throughout my life. And I think it's probably accentuated for um, something so specific. Uh, both cultures, right? We're, we're intersecting those two things together, but separately and together, I would imagine it's pretty, pretty volatile and dangerous at, at points when you're asking to claim space and step out of cultural norms. I think that there's definitely this feeling of like, when you step out of cultural norms, it's so ingrained in you. When you're constantly surrounded by that, it, you 100% believe I am a bad person. Especially when you haven't seen mm-hmm. anything else outside of that. And, you know, I think that on some level, I'm so grateful that like at an early age, I was kind of like, no, I don't really know if I want to go to these extended family gatherings anymore. I just want to hang out with like my dad's side of the family. I don't really want to hang out with the community. I don't want to go to these events. I was also kind of struggling with a lot of internalized racism, having grown up in a predominantly white community also. But I think that it didn't really apply here. Maybe it did. But I think it was also like, there's just something really off about the religious community. And I don't want anything to do with that. And my parents were really upset. But I think that by stepping out, and recognizing that early on, and then being surrounded by people who were completely outside of the community. A lot of my friends growing up were not South Asian. Mm -hmm. They were white, Latin American, Asian, black. Growing up, I was surrounded by people outside of the community. So I got to hear other people's perspectives, right? Mm -hmm. When you are in an insulated community, and you only hang out with people just like you, and you're only surrounded by people just like you, you will 100% believe I'm a bad person if I go against the grain. Mm -hmm. Because you've been taught that that's not possible. You haven't seen that happen yet. And it's not until you, it's so hard because I, it's one thing to tell this to your clients. It's another thing for them to see it. But like when you zoom out of your community and you interact with people who are different from you, you start to, kind of question a lot of the things that you've seen and heard. It's kind of like when you're raised in your family and you're raised in your household and then you make friends with somebody else and you see what their family is like, you start to see, oh, like I didn't realize that what my family was doing was actually not okay or not Mm -hmm. normal or like that other families were different, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Whatever you're raised with is your norm, right? Like that's, you don't, yeah, you don't know what else is out there until you've seen it and like expand your perspective. I want to touch on on who you're talking to when you're ta- like, I think just this week you posted a reel about estrangement I, or a, quite a few. I don't know why that's showing up in my mind, but I feel like it's been a topic for a little bit that I've been following. 
who are you talking to and why why is that um so loud at least for me to be paying attention to but so loud on your instagram account right now i don't know if it actually is or if i'm just like sticking with it sorry but i think it is <laughs> I, it's it, it's loud it is loud it, i i it, 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 you're, you're right it is loud and it's it's loud for a reason the, the i call it the disownment series mm -hmm. um, and that's because there is this fear in south asian american households that like if I do something that the family disapproves of, that my parents disapprove of, I will disappoint them. And if I disappoint them, they will disown me. And it's happened before. And it has happened to many South Asian Americans before. There is a growing Reddit thread of American-born uh, children of Desi parents, right? A, B, C, D generations, South Asian Americans who are like, help, I'm disowned by my parents because I married a black person or I like decided to change my career or move out or I'm, I'm gay or I realized that I don't identify as a man. I identify as a woman. There's so many different reasons. This is an actual growing thing mm -hmm. and it's speaking to minorities who don't feel welcome in the community you know our community our communities i should say plural because the south asian diaspora is so diverse has really prided itself on exclusivity but then we're shocked when no one wants to be a part of it anymore mm -hmm. and you know i think that there in immigrant households we recognize the sacrifices that our parents made to come here and we want to prove it to them that the sacrifices were worth it by doing everything to make them happy we forget that prior to their immigration they were also doing the same thing for their parents and then our grandparents were doing the same thing for our great-grandparents and mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with wanting to make your parents happy the problem is when you do that so much that you neglect your own needs because too much of anything is never a good thing. Mm -hmm. And what happens when you neglect your own needs is that you start projecting your unfulfilled needs and desires onto your children. That's the pattern of intergenerational trauma. And mm -hmm. when you do things to make your parents happy, right? to be in their good graces. One, there is no guarantee that that will ever be enough. They will always find another reason to want something more, right? The goalpost is always changing. They're all, it's never gonna be enough. You could marry the right person, then they're gonna wanna know if you have kids. Mm -hmm. If you have kids, they're gonna want another kid. Then they're gonna want your kids, their grandkids to do X, Y, and Z. It's just never gonna stop. It's never gonna be enough. There's mm -hmm. not enough you can do to truly keep them content and happy. Mm -hmm. And then you start, whether you like it or not, you're going to carry that down to your own kids. Mm -hmm. So if you really want to stop intergenerational trauma where it's at, it's important that you recognize your own needs and that you do what you need to do and honor your own desires, even if it disappoints the people you care about the most. Yeah. You have to do things in spite of what your anxiety is telling you to do. And for a lot of South Asian Americans, that means confronting 
the fear of getting disowned and the fear of estrangement. And since so many South Asian families are very similar, when we hear that South Asian Americans are getting disowned, there's this fear that we're going to have that too. Mm-hmm. And even if you don't get disowned by your parents, eventually at some point when you have veered away from the cultural norms or veered too far away from the cultural norms and you feel a lot of anxiety about that, about disappointing your parents, there will be an estrangement. There, there might be an estrangement, I should say. Mm-hmm. Like, even if it isn't disownment, there are a lot of South Asian Americans who feel estranged from their family because they already know what, what they're doing isn't acceptable. Yeah. And I would, and estrangement might be a hard, like a, a fracture, right? Like even if it's not uh, as strong as disownment, estrangement, a fracture where you, uh, I think this is true for a lot of my clients where uh, let's talk about just being a first generation um, higher education student, right? When you first generation going to college, maybe going to grad school, you start separating from the cultural norms of your family and your family system, you no longer fit or blend in. Um, and it, it doesn't match. And so it happens in lots of different ways. We're talking about this specific one, but even you talking about um, pleasing your parents, right? I went to, sometimes we have, let's talk about mothers um, go the very opposite direction. So let's say they didn't have a really uh, positive childhood or a parent who, um, um, a a mom who was super depressed and couldn't get out of bed. And so you're going to be the opposite of that mom. I'm going to be so involved and be so uh, um, uh, with it, uh, with my kids and so attentive that I'm also still going to reject my own needs for people pleasing and being the best ever. And we're still doing, it's still a generational trauma. It's a different pattern, but it's the same piece of rejecting your own needs and becoming misaligned. And it does get projected either on your children for more generational trauma or uh, on your marriage where you're creating another unsatisfied marriage that your kids have to participate in or watch. It's it's very similar um, in terms of human behavior, not the actual cultural piece, but it happens in lots of different ways. Um, And it can be true for people pleasing uh, and people pleasing your parents for all cultures. But I, the women we're mostly talking to here are people, women who are high achieving and the goalpost is changing for them, right? So we're talking about parents who are changing the goalpost. But once I get out of college, I'm going to go find this job. Once I get this job, I'm going to work my way up the ladder. Once I work my way up the ladder, I'm going to switch to get a, a promotion and a pay raise. And then I'm going to work my way up the ladder there. And usually I get clients at the end of that who are, at the top going, well, the goalposts can't move anymore and I don't know what to do and I'm unhappy. I, I think that what you're speaking to is very true. I really resonated with that too because I feel like that's yeah. definitely something that I'm going through right now. And I have yeah. to kind of like pause and tell myself, like, I'm actually going to be okay. Like, chill out. Yeah. <laughs> and like not wanting to be like our parents. And, yeah. you know, I've had clients say that it's like, I'm afraid I'm going to turn out to be like my mom, or I'm afraid I'm going to turn out to be like my dad. And it's like, well, first of all, the fact that you are here means that you are doing something differently. So. Absolutely. And I think like whether, you know, the cultural piece or just like, Tassie, I think you're talking about like other people, like just not meeting their needs. Right. Like, and how that translates down. Um, down a generational line, like that is the trauma, right? Is the unfulfilled needs projecting mm-hmm. your unmet needs on 
around to your children essentially and like living through them and then controlling like their experience it seems like and it seems like maybe that's happening in a very specific cultural way in your community or what you've observed would you say that that's accurate i think if i if i'm answering your question right emily there is definitely in the community this expectation to live out our parents' desires, especially when they already fear kind of losing so much of the culture as they came here. If, am I answering your question right? Yeah, I'm just, it was like curious, right? It's like, if you're saying like, our parents have given up so much to come here of the, you know, of their own maybe desires. They did that for their family. And now you're just seeing that like projected down the line. And then maybe you get adults who wake up and say, is this even the life that I wanted for myself? You know, 100%. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. And I mean, I, I, I think that for adults who have done that for so long, they don't know what they want. They can't trust their gut. They don't know how to locate their gut. They don't even know what their gut is telling them. And a lot of their decision-making is, well, what does mom and dad want? Or what does my family want? They can't even tell like, well, what do I want? Like, do I like chocolate or do I like ice cream? Or like, mm -hmm. do I like the color pink or do I like the color purple? Like you'd, you'd be surprised how far reaching this is when you've been raised your whole life to fulfill someone else's desires, you're going to have trouble making your own decisions as an adult, especially if you're used to somebody else making big decisions for you. Like, who do I get married? Mm -hmm. Well, that's the person you're going to be sharing a bed with. Mm -hmm. So your mom and dad are not going to be in the bedroom. You better make sure you like this person. Mm -hmm. There was an interview with Glennon Doyle and Brene Brown, which are two white women and a little off topic, but not fully, uh, about about um, Glennon Doyle's children. She walked in the room and she is a boy and a girl. And um, she uh, asked the group of children, boys and girls, hey, are you guys hungry? And all the boys said no. And all the girls looked at each other to decide if they were hungry or not. They couldn't internally look into their bellies and um see was true. they had to make decisions around and that still relates to me to this day right that i still rely on people to make decisions for me even knowing um that i want to be more aligned i want to hear my own voice and the conditioning is so heavy um that we are socialized to double check around the room to make sure that other people agree with my statement and yeah. it's really uncomfortable I, I love Glennon Doyle and Brene Brown, and I read Untamed by Glennon Doyle, and she, she, I remember she mentioned that in the first chapter, or the second chapter, about how, like, the girls looked at each other in the room and were like, oh, no, we're not hungry, right? Like, what is socially acceptable? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I, I will say, you know, I know we're specifically talking about the South Asian American community, but I think that sociologically, this is a pattern for any insulated community. I remember in college taking a sociology course specifically about Christian communities, uh, particularly white Christian communities and mm -hmm. like the kind of videos that they were putting out to market to Christian men and market to Christian women. 
And for a lot of the Christian women, the groups that they were marketing were like, oh, your relationship to God. Whereas for the groups that were being marketed to Christian men was brotherhood, their relationship to each other. So I found that really interesting in terms of like, what is acceptable in terms of being a woman of God or a man of God or being a woman of the culture, a man of the culture, like who do we look to for our relationship to religion and our relationship to culture? Mm-hmm. So. Absolutely. You started our conversation today talking about, oh man, it, it brought up something to me and I'm trying, I'm going to try to remember what you said. Um, but it was comparing uh, men and women or boys and girls in religion. And you were naming like, this is what men are told. This is what women, this is what I was told as a woman and I have a twin brother. And so I went, Oh, I was told that. Oh, I was told that, but it wasn't so aggressive. Right. So it, I think when you add religion to it, there's a rule book, like a very loud rule book that gets to be imposed. And and I know and I want to like shit on religion. I think religion is very important. It gives lots. Um, so whoever's listening, I'm, I'm not trying to get away from it, but it's louder about the expectations. And I think like especially in United States culture, right, everything has white supremacy and religious uh, uh, peace and rules around it that are, are subtler. And so I had the same socialization. I was like, Oh, I get it. I get it. I get it. Cause my brother got to do this and I didn't get to do this. Um, da, da, da. And I, and I was able to like name that, but it wasn't loud. It was very quiet. And I knew the rules. I needed to be quiet and good. And he got to be dirty, rowdy and loud. Um, and why was that? Right. And so I think when you add an additional layer of an insulated culture and an addition religion on top of that, it gets to be expressed much more directly and less subtly. I had to take the feedback and understand it quietly versus told very clearly what I was supposed to do. And yeah, yeah. no, sorry. I think that gets back to the point of like, you brought up um, like white dominance, right. And patriarchy and like how like we're all impacted, impacted mm-hmm. by it, whether it's really loud or quiet. And I had a question about, the history of like South Asia and the timeline of like, a change in culture, or like was was the South Asian community like when did Christianity maybe become a predominant religion in the culture? Do you know those that history? I know a little bit about the history of Christianity within India specifically. Some are fables and some are factual. It's a long, far-reaching story. There are some people who say that St. Thomas came to South India a thousand years ago and converted, like, people in South India way before the British ever came or the Portuguese ever came. And whether that's true or not is really, I, I can't speak to that. But I definitely think that with European influence over time, you know, it, it brought about Lutheranism, Baptist, like Protestant throughout time, and not just in South India too, but in other pockets of India as well. Uh, It also had a huge influence on colorism also in terms of like the conquest of India, Um, like who they, the British relied on to navigate more of the specific terrain of India. There was this idea that like 
darker skinned Indian people were more familiar with the terrain. So when they were navigating to different areas of India, the British relied on them a lot more. Um, and then, you know, the, it, it's a whole long story from there. I, I gave a talk on it a couple of years ago, but <laughs> I can't really remember all of the details just yet. And I, I think that so much of that has been upheld as the norm, that lighter skin is better, um, that being a Christian Indian makes you more respectable, especially in the eyes of American society. Um, you know, growing up being Catholic, we we actually spent a lot of my childhood going to Sunday school and church in the mainstream community with other white people in the community, because at some point we just stopped going to the local Indian church. So there is there is definitely some kind of respectability that's implied there, our ability to assimilate. Mm -hmm. And that soon becomes upheld as the norm for the culture. And then therefore, if you question it or if you go against it, well, you're not really being a good Indian, are you? Mm -hmm. And in actuality, it's like, no, a lot of these concepts are very Western. Um, there's actually growing talk about like a lot of people saying that South Asian LGBTQ people are whitewashed or too Western. Mm. And the argument, the counter argument is actually, no, they're not being too Western. Westernization is what taught us that LGBTQ is bad. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, I mean, yeah. absolutely. Uh, and I actually wanna like transition to that in terms of um, the kind of tension between different generations. Uh, I had a session last week that was talking about individualistic American society culture and cult uh, collectivistic, uh, more uh, family-oriented cultures. And, and this typically is out of the States and, and with immigrant families. Um, and I was talking about this with a client about how there's always tension and a push and a pull specifically, I mean, always, but I, we were referencing teenage years. And then I was talking about it in adulthood, the way in which, like, I think for the parents, there's a lot of grief, right? That you're losing uh, a piece of your identity. You're not, not, I don't want to say imposing, you're not, um, uh, gifting uh, tradition and things that your parents had given you. And so there's like a lot of grief around that. And you had, um, you had brought up the idea that conditioning is used to keep culture safe from extinction. And I think that's a huge, um, piece of the grief, um, that, that parents face. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I just want to take this moment to kind of give a shout out to a living, breathing example of this going on right now is the, what's going on in Iran mm -hmm. currently. Um, and I say this because I have a good friend who is Iranian and she is very passionate about this. But I mean, after everything, I hope I'm not butchering her name, but Masa Amini, mm -hmm. um, yep. the, the, the girl who was murdered because her headscarf was not on mm -hmm. right, you know, that created this huge women's rights protest in Iran, right? And the by doing that, the regime is threatened. The very idea of what, you know, people with power in the Iranian regime consider to be Iranian culture is being threatened. And look mm -hmm. at how they're responding, right? Like now we, there's this 
frankly, what I think should be in the news a little bit more and should be getting a lot more coverage is that 15,000 Iranian protesters are due to be executed. That's terrible. It's And it needs to be not only uh, just a little bit more in the news, it needs to be a global problem and it's a human rights violation in every way possible. Absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, to, I, I don't know how factually accurate this is. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt, but I heard somewhere that specifically protesters who are women, who are virgins are due to also be raped before they're executed to ensure that they don't go to heaven. I don't know how fact- factually accurate that is. So don't quote me on that. But if that is Newsweek, I mean, we don't know if that's still true. Like Newsweek, I like double checked that I went down the line. I don't, you know, like we have to be there to know, but it's really disgusting regardless and really fucking scary. It's, um, it's really terrible. And, you know, I think that shows just how much power women have in a culture. The culture feels threatened when women speak up because people think that how a woman behaves reflects the culture. I don't think that's true. I think that the culture can still go on. The culture can still live regardless of how women act or not. But there are people who still very much believe that it's a woman's job to uphold the culture. And just like what, you know, our former president Barack Obama once said is that if you want to judge a country by its wealth, look at how well their women are treated, right? Look at the women's, women's rights in the country because oftentimes countries in the global South and the East that are not considered first world countries will also be the ones that hold tighter to cultural values about women. Now that gets into another issue about globalization, modernization, who really gets to hold the wealth here with the West and all that. But the point being is that women are expected to uphold the culture. Women are the symbols of a culture. I mean, we see this with like the Miss Universe, Miss World pageants, right? And like now we're starting to have men participate in those things, but really it's very popular for women to represent their country and represent what the country is about. You are expected to uphold the culture, the gender division of labor, you know, women cooking cultural foods, cultural dress. A lot of those expectations are placed on women because what you cook and what you wear upholds the culture, right? Mm -hmm. Now, you know, there are men who have their own cultural clothing and there are men who cook, but historically speaking for a very long time, the expectation is that if you are a woman of your culture, this is what you wear, this is what you dress, this is how you act, this is how you raise your kids. And a lot of this is like unpaid labor on behalf of women to uphold that culture. That's a lot of pressure to be told that you cannot break out of the norm. Otherwise you're, yeah. And I think there's a, I mean, I have, I have South Asian clients. I have um, Hispanic and Latina clients. And, and not only is there pressure, there is a tension internally where I, I'm feeling misaligned. I understand where I want to go and that the values are really important. And I, and I don't know how to um, reject those two things. And so 
I don't even know if I'm doing this right, but my our training at TC has really talked to us about holding space for that. And what I talk about is you don't have to reject your culture or the cultural norms, but we're noticing one negative mental health things. You're also physically tired. Um, and so what we want to do is make choices with our eyes open. So you can choose to align yourself with your culture, but we want to have our eyes open making that choice versus unconsciously because you're supposed to. Um, and so that's typically the conversation we're having with in that in that space. And I think that's true for all women, but people in general, that we're just trying to intentionally make decisions versus the imposed rules that are quietly humming underneath the surface. Yeah. And, and that, that's the thing, right? Is that you can have your own relationship with your culture. You can have your own relationship with God and Mm -hmm. it's actually culturally attuned to your background to explore that. That's Mm -hmm. actually what was intended. You're supposed to have your own relationship with religion culture it's supposed to be of your own that's how you keep it alive and that's how you keep it genuine and i think you know part of that stigma especially in the south asian community is that if i go to therapy then i have to let go of my culture and that's the black and white thinking that's actually very harmful right that black and white thinking that if i go to therapy i can't be a part of my culture anymore that's not true you can still have your own relationship with your culture. It's just on your own terms, not on someone else's terms, right? Yeah. In a way that's mentally healthy for you. Yeah. You are not less of an Indian or less of a South Asian for doing so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like the therapy perspective, right? Like I know we've kind of touched on a bunch of pieces of mental health implications, but like, can you give me a clear picture of like, what are some of the mental health implications of um, being raised, I guess, in, the, in a partic- this particular way with these expectations so loud on the table? And then the second half of that question is like, what do clients need to heal from that? What do you see that they need from a therapeutic perspective? So it's a two-part question, I guess. I, I think that And Emily, you're specifically talking about with South Asian American clients, right? Who grew up in, okay. I think that, you know, some of the implications of growing up in an insulated community where you are taught, you can't do that. You can only do this because that's just what our people do. And if you do that, the other thing, it's shameful and it's wrong, right? That other thing may be a very, very, very human desire. And sometimes what is considered shameful and wrong in this insulated community is very hard to differentiate from what is actually universally and ethically morally wrong, right? Like it's hard for, I feel like a lot of people who grew up in insulated communities, especially South Asian Americans who are very religious, to know the difference between what is like morally, ethically, and universally wrong to do, regardless of your religious beliefs. And then also like what is considered shameful in your community, but is not necessarily wrong. Like, you know, a lot of what I found is that a lot of people who are particularly religious is that they don't know the difference between like 
okay, being LGBTQ is shameful and wrong in my community, right? But, you know, having sex with a child or sexually abusing a child, that is universally morally wrong. Like there are some very religious people in these pockets who don't know the difference between those things. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of mental health implications with confusing natural human desire with things that are universally and morally wrong is that you are taught to hide your very human and natural desires uh from you're you're tied to keep you're you're taught to keep them as secrets because they're shameful right to hide them and that can be translated across a wide array of behaviors right binge eating eating certain foods, shopping, spending a lot of money, um, your sexual identity, right? That shame and guilt and disgust that we associate with what the community finds wrong can translate into a wide variety of anxiety disorders, OCD, can prevent you from getting help. It also increases hopelessness, loss of motivation and satisfaction in life, it can increase your likelihood of committing suicide. Something that I recently learned is that my specific Indian subculture from South India actually has the highest suicide rate of mm. all Indian subcultures. We have the highest suicide rate. It can increase depression. You know, if you adhere very, very strongly to these unrealistic cultural norms, it can be very mentally unhealthy. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have eating disorders and don't know it. Mm-hmm. And I often find that happens a lot with my South Asian clients who come to therapy. They come to therapy for completely different reasons. A year later, after working together, we find out that when they were 13, they were throwing up. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of implications that come with hiding secrets in fear of disapproval and then associating that disapproval with things that are actually wrong when they're not actually that wrong, right? Like mm-hmm. I always get angry when I hear people associate, like, especially religious people, when they associate LGBTQ identity with pedophilia. Those are those two things are not the same thing. They're not Absolutely. the same thing. And that's because of their religious conditioning to think that things that are shameful and wrong in their community is morally and universally wrong, right? Pedophilia is morally and universally wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Having sex with a consenting adult is not, is not wrong. <laughs> like, and it, when you grow up in a community like that, it is hard to really know that what you want is okay. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of like internalized shame, right? Is what I'm hearing. And, and shame being differentiated for, for listeners from guilt in that guilt is, I think I, you know, I did something wrong I, and it can be a helpful emotion because it's like, I should look at, check and modify my behavior sometimes, but like shame is like, I am wrong or I am bad. And I think shame oftentimes is rooted more in the, the way other people will perceive yeah. me or accept or reject me. Right. I think, you know, going back to that estrangement piece and like, this tight-knit community, I could say where shame would be really present emotion, but also the most challenging emotion in that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, especially if you haven't seen that modeled for you in your community and you're, and you only hang out with people in your community, right? Like there are a lot of South Asian LGBTQ people who have that rupture or have that fracture from the community, if not completely estranged from the community. So then LGBTQ children in the community or communities don't see other South Asian LGBTQ people just like them right. in their immediate space. Right. No. Um, so in your work with clients, how do you start creating self-awareness, healing, um, and more aligned living, I guess? You know, the most important thing, I think, for a lot of South Asian people, what I'm finding is that the just very basic skill of being non-judgmental and going with it, going with whatever they bring to the table, validating how they feel. You know, I think that oftentimes as South Asian American health providers, because we want so badly to do well at our job because of imposter syndrome and being children of immigrants, we think that we have to be super professional. We have to learn up all the different therapies and modalities and whatnot. And I often see a lot of South Asian American therapists fall into this trap of like, I gotta be CBT certified. I gotta be DBT certified. I gotta be ACT certified, this, that, that they forget that your South Asian American client just wants someone who gets it. Someone who isn't going to uphold the values and the norms of the community because the values and the norms of the community are very judgmental. A lot of South Asian American clients refuse to see South Asian American therapists. There are South Asian American clients that will deliberately seek out white, black, Latin therapists because they already know if I see a South Asian American therapist, I'm not gonna get their most authentic self and they're gonna judge me and they're gonna uphold the norms of the community. Just by you breaking down those walls, and just showing up as your authentic, non-judgmental self, right? Mm -hmm. Having a conversation more than wearing that like, you know, blazer and looking uber professional, just like mm -hmm. having that casual approach can break down so many barriers for a lot of South Asian American clients. You know, as South Asian Americans, we just want a therapist who gets it. We want somebody who gets us, who doesn't uphold the judgment of the community because that's healing, right? The moment that you take away that judgment, that's how you deconstruct that shame. Absolutely. It's, it's authenticity, right? Like yeah. I'm hearing you want someone who's authentic. And I think like Stassi and I have talked about this in the podcast before, but like you can only take clients as far as you've gone yourself. And so like, I think it's really cool that you're, you are on these social media platforms and on your website, you're very much saying like, this is who I am. This is what you're going to get. Like, this is a non-judgmental space inviting that in. And I can imagine where working with someone who's actually of your culture could be a, a higher level of healing, even maybe than going outside of it. If it's truly like an aligned, authentic experience. Right. Yeah. And I heard this phrase somewhere once that I think is so true, which is all judgment is self-judgment. You know, mm -hmm. like we learn to be judgmental of others when we weren't allowed to be received non-judgmentally. And so 
you're saying like that's the first step in healing here like that makes a lot of sense to me like being in a non-judgmental space and then one learns to release self-judgment judgment of others that makes so much sense you know that judgment is self-judgment that's absolutely correct because you're telling yourself well they can't do that because i was told i can't do that and i would never do that okay that's fine but other people don't have to subscribe to your rule book. So how are you actually holding yourself back when you tell yourself that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The work that you're doing is so cool and so important. And like I said, that's why we reached out to her. I was like, Stassi, we have to talk to Tracy. Like mm-hmm. she's just has this message that feels so clear and so authentic. And it, it's you're doing really amazing work and we appreciate Thank you guys. You. And the both of you too. I mean, emotionally unfucked. What a cool podcast. That's awesome. That's so awesome. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, Tracy, is there anything else you want in our conversation today or anything else we want listeners to know before we let you go today? Yeah. I mean, I, I just want to say like, if there are South Asian Americans listening right now, like, Whatever you decide in terms of who your therapist is, you know, that's okay. Your therapist does not have to be a South Asian person if you don't want them to be. But I also just want to reiterate that your South Asian therapist gets it. We have made a career choice that the community didn't approve of, right? And contrary to popular belief, this field does not generate as much revenue or income as you think. <laughs> so our parents are very upset with us for yep. making this. We have deliberately done something that went against the norm. So we get it. We yep. understand what it's like. We, at the end of our session, we don't just fly off to Mars. You know, we live in the same society you do. Yep. So, you know, maybe you met with a South Asian therapist who was very judgmental. I certainly have, but trust me, there are South Asian therapists out there who get it, who get you. Don't be afraid to schedule a consultation. And you absolutely should. There's just no replacement for under someone fully understanding your community and where you're at. There's just nothing like it. And so, Tracy, I'm so proud of you. I, I mean, we've already said this, but I'm so proud of the work you're doing. I'm so glad you're being so authentic and vulnerable in public spaces so that people can understand that's what we're talking about. That's who you that's who you're serving, because um it creates safety before somebody even walks in your door. And there is no replacement for somebody understanding your lived experience, whether that's me as a new mom and my lived experience versus um, uh, someone else who's had addiction in their family and that a therapist has had that in their own family. There's no replacement for a lived experience. And anybody who's listening should try to find that. And I know finding therapists is really fucking hard. So uh, take this with a grain of salt that you have to do a lot of work to find a good therapist who's open. But um, absolutely, like, lived experiences is so important. Thank so, you. you. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. An emotionally perfect therapist is not going to make for a good therapy. So absolutely. Right? Yeah. That's for that to clients, right? Thank you for modeling that. Absolutely. Can you tell us one more time where everyone can find you? Yes. Yeah, so I am uh, at the bad Indian therapist on Instagram and TikTok. Uh, I am also a therapist on Twitter. I do not partake in therapist Twitter. I want to make that very clear. My therapist Twitter is purely just about reality TV. If you are a Real Housewives fan or a Bachelor Nation fan, 
You can come follow me on Twitter at Bad Desi Therapy. That's B-A-D-D-E-S-I Therapy. And that's just because of the character count on Twitter. And God knows what's happening with Twitter right now. Uh, <laughs> and I am also on the website at thebadindiantherapist.com. So please come visit me at my website. I'm not accepting new clients right now, but I do have a wait list. So if you want to get on my wait list, you could just sign up my Google form in my link tree on Instagram and TikTok and hope to hear from you all soon. Thank you so much for being here and spending time with us today. If you liked our conversation, please give a review, go follow Tracy um, and ask any questions to us. We'll have her back on. If you have any follow-up questions, please DM us and we will invite her back for a conversation. So this has been emotionally unfucked. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you.